The Apostle Paul asked there in verse 31 of Romans chapter 8, What then shall we say to these things? What more could be possibly said? As I approach this wonderful and tremendous 8th chapter of Romans, this morning's message will be the 15th message in just Romans chapter 8 alone. Uh, that's about two verses per message. I guess that's not too bad. But you might wonder, what more could the pastor possibly say about these things? In fact, Roman, or Paul began this section in his letter to the Romans back in chapter 5. Now in my book, that was 29 sermons ago. When we began chapter 5, and we took a little bit of a hiatus, and we did some things on parenting and those kind of things, but I looked back into my, my schedule and my notes, and we began chapter 5 the first Sunday in February last year. Exactly a year ago to today, basically, we began chapter 5. So as we come to verse 31, where Paul asks, What shall we say to these things? I want you to think about a couple of things. A couple of things on a scale of 1 to 10. You go to the doctor, you go to the ER, and he or she asks you about your pain level, and they show you those funny-looking faces, and, and on a scale of 1 to 10, you tell the doctor where your pain level is at. And if you're like me, you kind of try to match the face and figure out the number. Well, I've put two scales in your sermon outline this morning. No funny-looking faces, but I want you to think about or mark a couple of things on a scale of 1 to 10. If you take out the sermon outline, you'll see the two scales. If you don't have the outline, you know, think of these numbers in your head. I want everybody to do this. No matter what your age here is this morning, think about these numbers on a scale to 1 to 10. First of all, on a scale of 1 to 10, I want, to mark, want you to mark how sure you are of God's love for you. How certain are you that God loves you? Mark on the scale where you are, anywhere from, I don't think God loves me, to I am sure God loves me. A 10 is your absolute certainty that you are loved of God. A 1 is, boy, you don't feel loved by God at all. Where are you right now on a scale of 1 to 10? Are you really experiencing the love of God? Or are you going through a little bit of a dry spell, as it were, and, and you, you wonder about God's love? The second chart has to do with how certain you are that you will spend all eternity with God, your eternal security. So mark on the scale where you are, anywhere from I don't think I'm going to heaven to I am sure, absolutely certain, I'm going to heaven, a 10. We're doing this little exercise with these scales for the same reason that Paul asked here, what shall we say to these things? Because Paul is anticipating the objections or the questions questioning him and his teaching that might arise based on what he has said in Romans chapter 8. And these objections that can arise and do arise are intended to cause you to doubt. These objections to what Paul has said are intended to move you to the left on your scale. From certainty or fairly certain, clear over to doubt. Those who object to what Paul has been teaching can cause you to doubt God's love for you. And they can cause you to doubt your salvation. You see, there are going to be people and there are going to be circumstances in your life that want to take that mark on your scale and move it as far to the left as they can. You're going to have particular people in your life that want to sever you from your no condemnation status to make you feel condemned. 
They want to sever you from the love of God, and you're going to have things happen in your life that will cause you to doubt God's love and cause you to doubt your salvation because there are powerful forces at work that want to move you to the wrong side of the scale. So please turn once again to Romans chapter 8, verse 31, the 31st verse of this 8th chapter of Romans. He says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us. As Paul concludes or begins to conclude the 8th chapter of Romans, he knows that many believers are still going to have doubts about their security in Christ and that false teachers are going to come along and exploit these doubts and things happen in your life that will exploit these doubts as it were. So to give believers the assurance that they need, the Apostle Paul reveals God's answer to two closely related questions. And the questions are pretty straightforward. Can any person or any circumstance cause a believer to lose his or her salvation? So in verses 31 through 34 of Romans chapter 8 that we'll look at this morning, Paul addresses that first question. Can any person cause a believer to lose his or her salvation? And then next week we'll look at verses 35 through 37 where Paul addresses the second question. Can any circumstance cause a believer to lose his or her salvation. This morning, we'll be looking at the persons. This morning, we will ask, who is against us? Who is against us? If God is for us, who is against us? You know, I put in my notes, whom are the whos? And then as I thought about it, I think it's, whom are the whoms? Or is it, whom are the whoms? (laughs) Whatever it is, who are these people? Now, notice the second letter or the the two-letter word if in the middle of 31, if, if God is for us. The word if begins what's called a conditional clause in in the grammar. If such and such or so and so, if these are the conditions, if this happens or if such and such. But the grammatical construction in the Greek language here tells us that this is an already fulfilled condition. The condition's been fulfilled, fulfilled. It could be translated, since God is for us, because God is for us. The same God who is for us is the same God who, verse 28, causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. The God who is for us is the same God, verse 29, who foreknows us, who calls us, who predestines us, justifies and glorifies us since God is for us and does all of this in our lives, who can be against us? Now, the obvious implication is that if anyone or anything can rob you of your salvation, he or it would have to be greater than God himself because God is both the giver and the sustainer of salvation. Remember that Paul began chapter 8 with no condemnation. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So who could conceivably take away our no-condemnation status? Is there anyone who is stronger than God? Is there anyone who is stronger than the creator and the sustainer of the universe? And Paul ends chapter 8 with no separation. Paul is convinced, verse 39, that nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So who or what could conceivably remove us from God's love? Again, it'd have to be someone or something who is more powerful than God. If God is for us, who can be against us? So whom are the who's? We might say, who are the who's that that try? Or what are the what's that try 
to separate us from the love of God. So let's look at who some of the people might be. Could it be other people that could separate us from the love of God or take us out of our no condemnation status? It is a sad fact of life that there are people who want to sever you from your no condemnation status and want to sever you from the love of God. As a believer in Jesus Christ, there are people who are against you, right? These are people who persecute Christians. Paul told Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. And what is the purpose of persecution? Why do they do it? They do it so you'll give up your faith. They, want, they do it to stamp out Christianity. There were the Judaizers in Paul's day who promoted a false gospel and said that you had to be circumcised and, and keep the law in order to be saved. And there are thousands of cults, or maybe hundreds, I don't know, all over the world, cults and religions today, that want you to join with them and forsake the true gospel and forsake your faith in Jesus Christ. Some of you have family members and friends who are unsaved who want you to give it up, right? Who want you to give it up. They really don't like the idea that you are a Christian. And all these folks in false religions would just like to draw you away from Christ and rather, as we see it, rather you be lost, rather you be like them. But the question is, would God ever release us? Would God ever release us? Are, there, are those who are against us greater than God who is what? For us? You know, you might be thinking as I am right now about that great promise of Jesus in John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verse 26. Remember that? Parable of the great shepherd. Page 1320 in the little Bibles. Page 1496 in the larger in John chapter 10, we find Jesus' parable of the good shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Now, Jesus' words in chapter 10 here cause some of his critics to accuse Jesus of insanity. You're, you're insane. Some claim that Jesus, because of these words, was possessed by a demon. After Jesus says what we are going to read here, the Jews picked up stones to kill him. It's more than interesting that one of the most precious promises we have in Scripture sparks such hatred and accusations against Jesus. And we come in on Jesus' debate with his critics at verse 26 of John chapter 10. And he says to them, But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Nowhere else in God's word is there a stronger affirmation of the absolute eternal security of all true Christians. Jesus plainly says that the security of the believer is in God's hands, in my hands, says Jesus, in God's hand. It does not depend upon human effort, upon your effort or anybody else's. It's all in the Father's hands, in the hands of the Savior, who in unity keep us safe. 
Well, that raises another whom? Well, what about ourselves? Can we remove ourselves from the love of God from our no condemnation status? I've had people tell me that no one is able to snatch us out of God's hand. They say, I agree with what the scripture says here. And then they'll go on to say, but we can take ourselves out. We can take ourselves. It's interesting that they believe that their free will, their choice is more powerful than the sovereign hand of God. No one can snatch us out. <laughs> and I'm sure it's certainly included in, in no one myself. But there's a deeper issue here that we must address because it falls hard on the hearts of, of many believers. And it is this. We might honestly wonder, and, and I've, I've known people who do, if Christians can take themselves out of God's grace. Can Christians take themselves out of God's grace by committing some unusually heinous sin that, that nullifies the divine work of redemption that binds them to the Lord? In an act of mental illness or physical illness that would cause a Christian to sin in a perfect way, and you probably know what I'm talking about, or can a Christian drift so far into sin, so far away from God, that there's no getting back? I want to point out a sober and, and somber fact that has to do with the believer's security. And we'll see why it's so somber in a minute. But we find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the 27th verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the 27th verse. When we partake of the Lord's Supper in a few minutes, I'm going to be reading the verses right before these. In the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking about the institution of the Lord's Supper. And then in verse 27, Paul addresses the manner, the attitude that believers should have when they come to the table of the Lord. Verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in doing so, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Now don't get the idea here, as some do, that all sickness is a result of sin. Not all sickness is a result of something that we did. But here is a case where believers were sick, they were weak because they did sin, and they were sinning in the way they participated in the Lord's Supper. In Corinth in particular, the Lord's Supper was part of what they called the agape feast, the love feast. Uh, we would call it a potluck. You know, and I always announce the potluck and I go, no, there's no such thing at luck. It's got to be pot providence if we're right. <laughs> but, but anyway, they would have a communal meal together and then the Lord's Supper would be part of of that communal meal, fellowship meal together. And there's nothing wrong with that. After all, that's the way it was when the Lord instituted the, the, the Lord's Supper at Passover. They partook of the Passover meal, and, and that's a good way to do it. But in Corinth, it's like they were doing everything wrong that they possibly could. So if you go back up to verse 17 of this 11th chapter, Paul says, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. 
For in the first place, when you come together as a church here with their, their agape meal, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. Can you, can you even picture this in your mind? I can't even imagine it. Everybody's sitting in their own little corner at their own little table and uh, doing their own thing. And he says, you know, people are going without food. Some, some are intoxicated. So he goes, what? <laughs> what? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? And this I will not praise you. They were coming together, and it wasn't for the Lord's Supper. It was because of all this stuff that was going on. Their, their motives and their attitudes were completely wrong. They did not judge their bodies rightly. They did not look on their sin and, 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 and receive the forgiveness of their sin that God promised. And therefore, they were sick and weak. And then Paul adds, and a number sleep. Doesn't mean they were falling asleep because they were drunk. Here it is used metaphorically to mean death. A number of you have died. Have died because of this sin. So here's the deal. As in the case of Ananias and Sapphira who died in Acts chapter 5. Remember that? They brought an offering. They wanted to be like Barnabas. And, and they said, yeah, we brought the full amount. And they lied about the offering they gave. And Ananias dropped dead. Sapphira came in later. And she committed the same sin and lied. And she dropped dead. As in their case and as the case here, there are certain sins and lifestyles and behaviors of believers that God will not tolerate and he will put an end to it. We could look at it more deeply in Scripture, but it tends to be those sins, those sins that harm the holiness, the blamelessness, and the testimony of the church of Jesus Christ. Verse 26, as we'll read later here, says, In, in partaking of the Lord's Supper, you what? You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What we do here and will do here in a few minutes is a proclamation of the death, the resurrection, and the coming of Jesus Christ. Literally, it's our testimony. And there are some, some sins that God will not let these sins continue. And here's the deal as I see it. God takes the sinning Christian home to himself before that sin goes too far and that person will lose his or her salvation. God will take them home for the sake of the church, for their church. And how do we know that? It brings us back to verse 32 of Romans chapter 8. There's a third person we might wonder about, as whether he could take away our salvation. And, and that person is God the Father. After all, it was God the Father who loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish and have everlasting life. If anyone could take away our salvation, then it'd have to be the one who gave it, right? We might argue theoretically at least that since God is sovereign, since God is omnipotent, he knows all things, he could take away salvation if he wanted to. So we might think, well, maybe I'm not good enough to stay in. 
Maybe God has had enough of me, and it's just less trouble to put me out. Maybe God looks at me and says, if I had known you are going to be this much trouble, I wouldn't have brought you in to begin with. Maybe it's some sin that I just can't get a hold of that so easily besets me. Now, if I believe that salvation had mostly to do with me and what I believed and what I did to begin with, that is, if we're going to believe that men are saved by their own act, even if it's an act of faith, and God is simply responding to their act, maybe God gives in finally and says, you're really not living the way I want. I'm just going to put you back out again. Maybe God is the one. Maybe God is the one person who could remove our salvation. God is the one person who could just push us out. But Paul answers such objections in Romans chapter 8 and verse 32. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Now Paul is arguing here, from the greater to the lesser. This was a common way to make a point in Scripture. This is the way they argued things. The, the greater thing, the greatest thing, was that God gave his own son. God delivered him over to godless men to die on the cross for our sins. That was the greater thing. That was the greatest thing. So how could God possibly sacrifice his own son for the sake of those who believe and then at some point cast out some of those blood-bought believers? How could he cast them out of his family once Jesus had died on the cross for them? Would God do less for believers after they are saved than he did for them prior to their salvation? God has done the great thing. He will certainly do the lesser things. Keeping me is one of the lesser things. Forgiven me now that all my sins are forgiven in Christ is one of the lesser things. If God loved us so much while we were wretched sinners, we were enemies of God, we were enemy combatants of God, according to Romans, that he delivered up his own son for us, would he turn his back on us after we have been cleansed from sin and made righteous in his sight? No, Paul says, he freely gives. Now, it should be no surprise that the word translated freely gives, karizomai, is often translated forgives in the Bible. He forgives by grace. The root word is charis, charis, charisa, uh, karen. All those names mean grace. Karizomai, which means grace. It's a gift of grace. He freely gives all things of grace. And this is the point. God's unlimited forgiveness. God's unlimited forgiveness makes it impossible for a believer to sin himself out of grace. We can't sin ourselves out of grace. And then verse 33 of Romans chapter 8 brings up another possibility. If someone who is against us that might be able to remove us from our no condemnation status, and we might ask, what about Satan, the accuser of the brethren? Verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? 
We're told that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He, he, he comes to you. He wants to condemn you. You stupid Christian. You've done that a million times. You're not going to take that sin back to God again. You know, what's he going to think of you? And, and the guilt comes down. And, and Satan, the accuser of the brethren, we're told in Scripture that he's in the presence of God accusing you, accusing me. You know, that's a tough thing. The world and Satan are constantly bringing charges against believers. All you got to do is watch the news these days and see the charges that are brought against believers. We're the ones that are intolerant. We're the ones that are messing up the world. We're the ones that are doing everything. And, you know, in the Bible, Satan accused God's servant Job. Have you considered my servant Job? God said to Satan. And I go, thanks a lot, God, for bringing up my name. That's probably what Job was thinking at that point. I'm doing pretty good, God, until you brought up my name before Satan because. Job or God accused or Satan accused Job of worshiping God out of selfishness because God had blessed him so much. You know, anybody would love you, God, if you had blessed him as much as you had had Job blessed Job. And you know, he you know, but Job worshiped God out of reverence and joy. Satan also tried to undermine Peter's faith. Remember that? Peter warned or Jesus warned Peter of the danger when they were in the upper room shortly after the Lord's Supper. Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Satan has demanded permission to come to you and, you know, just lay you out. But Jesus said, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Do you see the divine protection, the keeping here in all of this? First of all, just like in the case of Job, Satan had to ask permission. Jesus granted it, but Satan can't do anything to you that God does not allow. But secondly, Jesus prayed for, Satan, for Peter. He intercede, interceded for him, and Jesus told Peter the outcome. Peter, you will deny me three times, but when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Jesus interceding on our behalf, all of us. It brings us to the, the final person. What about Jesus? We might wonder if Jesus would take back our salvation. That brings us to verse 34 of Romans chapter 8. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Because Jesus makes intercession before us. He is at the right hand of God interceding for us right now for all believers. Because Jesus makes intercession for us. God's elect shall never perish and no one shall take them out of his hand. For Christ to take away our salvation would mean for him to work against and to nullify his own promise. Did you know that Jesus offers no temporary spiritual life. Not you are in, now you are out, now you are in, you're out. To say it kind of tritely, maybe. Jesus said, I am the door. He didn't say he was the swinging gate. <laughs> in and out, in and out. But what kind of life does Jesus give? Jesus gives eternal life to his sheep. He gives, present tense, eternal life. So when did you receive eternal life? When did you begin to live eternally? Now, eternal means forever, of course, but it's also a quality of life. 
when did you begin to live forever and also the, the kind of life that is summed up in eternal life? It was the moment you believed in Jesus. And if it was temporary life, it's not eternal. Jesus said, my sheep will never perish. You just got to love Hebrews chapter 7. And you're going, Hebrews? Book of Hebrews? Something to love there? (laughs) That's a pretty tough book. This This is one of my favorite concepts in Scripture. The seventh chapter of Hebrews, the 24th verse. Page 1464 in the smaller Bible and 1684 in the larger. In Hebrews chapter 7, the writer is contrasting Christ with priest in the Old Testament. Jesus is the great high priest, and he's contrasting him with the the priest in the Old Testament under the law. The Old Testament priests all had a fatal flaw. They had a fatal flaw. Their sacrifices were temporary. And the priests themselves were temporary. Day after day, they served in the temple on behalf of of people. And day after day, the people sinned and had to keep bringing sacrifices. Then the priests died and more priests had to take their place. And it was an endless temporal cycle of sacrifice and death. And then it says in verse 24 of Hebrews 7, But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Verse 25, Therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Here we see something great about Jesus, our high priest. He never dies. He continues forever. He never dies. That's why he can save us from the beginning, from the very beginning, to, as the King James Version puts it, to the uttermost, forever, because it's never broken. From There's there's no stopping his salvation. It goes all the way into access with God. It anchors us there with God and holds us there forever because he is a forever priest. Amen? Amen. Amen. The meaning, that's the meaning of verse 24. He continues his priesthood permanently, forever. Jesus is the great, great high priest, and he has no possibility of end. And you notice that word permanent. Sometimes it's translated unchangeable. The idea is that it can never come to a conclusion. It can never come to an end. But unchangeable means that it just belongs to one person, Jesus Christ, and can never be transferred to anybody else. It stays there. So one more passage of Scripture. Go to Romans chapter 5, verse 10. The fifth chapter of Romans, the tenth verse. Because in Romans 5, 10, I know Romans 5 is in my Bible here someplace. There it is. Paul is talking about what was accomplished through the death of Jesus Christ. And then he talks about what is accomplished by the life of Christ. And so Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, 
much more having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. What does that mean? It is this. If Jesus' death did so much for you, imagine what his life is doing for you. If by his death he could redeem you from Satan and sin, by his life, imagine how he must hold you and keep you. See, that's what Paul is saying. We are being saved, present tense, kept by his life. Kept by the one who is to the right hand of God the Father interceding for us. So when Satan comes along with those accusations and says, you see what Bill did yesterday and he promised he'd never do that again. And Jesus says, he's one of mine. He is being saved by my life. We are being saved, present tense, by his life. If his death could do what it could do, a negative, think about what his life can do for us, a positive. That's why Jude says he's able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless. And that's why Paul says, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. You ever thought of that? He will perfect it. God, the, Jesus, God the Father, Jesus will perfect it. On God's chart of you, he's going to make you a perfect ten. He's going to make you a perfect ten. And that is why we have confidence and can move our confidence in him to a 10 as well. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, I do thank you not only for what Jesus did for us by giving his life, by his death on the cross, and we will be remembering that in, in, in just a little bit, Lord, but... Uh, I also thank you for what he continues to do with his life. And Father, when doubts come into our minds and we wonder about these things, and it, it could be circumstances or it, it could be some other person or just because of something we have done, Lord, where, where we begin to doubt this. Father, help us to remember that precious promise that if we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. Through your Holy Spirit, give us what it takes, Lord, that we would not distance ourselves from you, but we can come in in confidence into the very throne room of God and say, God, this is what's going on, and I give it to you. And thank you, God, that even my Savior Jesus Christ is interceding for me and working on my behalf through all these things and that you will bring it to completion to perfection in Christ and we do pray this in his name amen